Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and they baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he pe preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Julia, for reading God's word to us, sister. It's so, so good to see all of your beautiful faces here. Um, it would be even better if we weren't all masked, but it's still good to see your beautiful eyes and, and, and heads of hair, most of you at least. Um, so about five years ago, I first met the man who's going to be preaching God's word to us today, Pastor John Anzardo. Five years ago, we were both, our families were both going through major transitions. I had just recently with our family uh, moved to New York and was just beginning to serve as a pastor here at New Hope. And John and his family were in the process of, of almost, they were, they were in the process of, of transitioning to northern New Jersey to serve at Maranatha Grace Church. Fast forward five years later, a quick five years if you ask me, Pastor John has been faithfully serving Maranatha Grace Church uh, for half a decade now. And over those five years, I have come to deeply love and respect this brother. He's become a, a dear friend. I, wouldn't, I didn't know this was going to happen five years ago, but he's become such a deep and, and, and trusted uh, friend and a man that I respect so deeply. And, and one of the things that I really love about this guy, I'll give you two things. One, he, he's, a, he's a humble dude. And the other thing is, as much as I hate this word, I'm going to say because I think it's appropriate, there's an authenticity about him. He's authentic. And um, as, as the kids say, he, he, he's a real one, this guy. He's a real one. And I really appreciate that about him, brother. And, and it's one of the reasons that I'm very um, eager for God to share his word to us through you, um, his humble servant. So I'm going to invite Pastor John to come up and preach God's word to us. Let's uh, welcome him, and I'll get out of the way. Well, good afternoon, New Hope. 
Rob, thank you so much for that kind introduction. Uh, I didn't pay him to say it, but I think I needed to. Uh, grace and peace to you from Maranatha. Uh, we, we love you. We're so thankful for you, for your care, for sharing Rob last year. I mean, the, the, the pandemic kind of shut that down, but he was, he was double dipping for those that you don't know. He was coming and preaching at Maranatha while we were in a season of transition and then coming and preaching here week after week. Thank you for your encouragement. Most of all, thank you for your partnership. And Rob, the feeling is mutual. I'm so thankful for you. And uh, again, I, I often say that I'm Rob 2.0 at, uh, at Maranatha, but I don't think that I'm 2.0. I, I still think he's, he, you guys have a wonderful pastor. And, a, and, and I want to encourage you as a pastor in the middle of a pandemic and all sorts of weirdness in our world, pray for your pastors, encourage them. Every decision that is made, it's going to be second-guessed, it's going to be challenged, and it's going to be frustrating, and nobody wins. And so please pray for them and encourage them. And let's all be humble as we kind of work this thing out together. We're all in this together. So that's my encouragement to you. And it is a great joy that I get to come and be here and open God's word together. And with that, let's look at Acts chapter 8. That was, uh, thank you, sister, for reading that for us. And as we begin, let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time that we now get to look at it together. I pray that your spirit would help us. Because if it's just me talking, we are really just wasting time. Lord, I thank you for the way that you have encouraged, that you have sustained, protected, sanctified this body, your bride, New Hope Fellowship. I pray that you would even do so now, continue to do so, for your glory and our good, in Christ's name, amen. We're just dropping into Acts, and I, uh, I, so let me just give us a little bit of a brief overview. If you go back to the beginning of the book, Acts chapter 1, you'll remember that it begins with Christ is resurrected, he has been with the disciples, and now he is ascended, he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, and he says, stay where you are. Remember, the, the Holy Spirit comes and fills his apostles and, and all that were gathered waiting for, for, for this sign from the Lord. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They burst out of the doors, and Peter gives this epic sermon on the day of Pentecost, and thousands are saved. The first days of the early church are, are, are documented in the opening chapters, and there is explosive growth in Jerusalem, in the church. Thousands are coming. But this growth is not, it's not all rainbows and sunshine because persecution comes. And the church is persecuted and then scattered. But in that scattering, as the church is sent out, so is the gospel. And we see then the fulfillment of the command of Christ to go take this, uh, all that they have learned to, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and that's where uh, the, the gospel goes earlier in this chapter in verse eight, in chapter eight. They, uh, the gospel goes out to Samaria, and you can read about that. Peter and John go out preaching the gospel, and many are saved in Samaria. And this passage is now a transitional passage in a sense to see how the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now it's going to begin to go out to all the world. And there is this really unique account here that, that, that Luke gives us. But this passage is more than just transition. 
Because we see that the gospel is not just for Jews, but for Gentiles also. And this unique encounter between Philip and this official shows us God's pursuit for each of his people and his power to save and, and his power to save them. What we see in this, in, in this passage is God's heart for his people. Because outside of God's love, there is only brokenness, marginalization, and frustration. God, but, but God passionately pursues a broken people who are made a whole by, the, by his own power, which is revealed in the gospel. And so with that, would you look back with me at verse 26? Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. One of the things that jumps off the page is, that, is, that, uh, is God's intentional, even extravagant pursuit of his people. Do you notice Philip is not the subject of this passage? God is. The Holy Spirit enlists Philip and then throughout the passage, the Spirit is the one directing and informing Philip at every phase of this account. And, and let's just pull back a little bit, going back to the beginning of chapter 8 again. Philip was with Peter and John in Samaria, where he saw a tremendous work of, this, of many Samaritans coming to believe in Christ. And this is significant because you may remember that Samaritans were despised by Jews. They were seen as half-breeds and, and even called dogs. But Philip saw God's amazing grace come to them. And they celebrated as these, these once enemies were made brothers and sisters in Christ. God's grace, you see, is for all people. But after this, this time in Samaria, Philip goes back to Jerusalem. He's returned. But the Lord isn't done with him yet. When he's back home, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Hey, Phil, time to go again. Maybe he was doing laundry. He was unpacking his suitcase. I don't know. But he gets up. And it's not going to a town this time, but a road in the desert. And Philip immediately, without going, where? But immediately gets up and goes. And on the road, as we see in our passage, as the Lord had planned it, he sees an official, an, uh, an official to the Ethiopian queen, Candace. Uh, the, the, the name Candace is kind of like Pharaoh. It's not really the name of a particular person. It's just the office. It's, a, it, it's not a family name, so to speak. He was a, an official of the treasury, probably somebody like the secretary of, uh, of treasury. And he's traveling back home to Ethiopia after spending time himself in Jerusalem, likely there for the festival of Passover, uh, Pentecost, in which the Holy Spirit, again, came upon the disciples in the crowds in Acts 2. Now, these, Luke, the author, is not just writing these simply for effect, these details. Instead, he's showing us God's pursuit of this man. 
God goes the long way around. I mean, the dude was just in Jerusalem, the town with all the apostles in it. Why not just send somebody down the street while he was still in town? But brothers and sisters, efficiency isn't always what God is after. And Luke is showing us the incredible, loving, extravagant pursuit of God, of his people. Recall the way that that, that God's pursuit is spoken of in Luke chapter 15. Remember, there are three parables. We we see the the shepherd who has has 100 sheep and one wanders off. And then the, the shepherd drops everything to pursue that wayward sheep. This is extravagant. The same with the lady who lost the coin. She had 10 coins, loses one, and she turns over over the house in search of recovering it. Nothing else matters. They are singularly focused. I recently rewatched The Last of the Mohicans. Anybody remember that movie? Remember Daniel Day-Lewis, really dramatically, says to his love, he goes, no matter what occurs, I will find you. That's the singular focus that God is showing us of his people, of his pursuit. Last time I was actually here, I, I preached on the book of Zacchaeus, or, or the, the passage of Zacchaeus in Luke. And in Luke 19, Jesus essentially says the same reason to Zacchaeus. He goes, I'm passing through this town for you, Zacchaeus. And we, you may remember the, 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 the really the, the tagline for all of the book of Luke comes in that passage. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. And God's still at it in this passage. He is singularly focused in his extravagant pursuit. So far in Acts, Luke has shown us large groups of coming to believe on Christ and how God has pursued people in this way. But Luke focuses, he brings it a a tight focus into the particulars here. God shows us his, his own meticulous care for the individual. I don't know where you are, but perhaps you feel like this Ethiopian official on a, on a desert road. You've tried to find answers to satisfy the longings of your heart, but you feel like you just have more questions. This is the situation for this guy. He's actually frustrated, as we'll come to see. He's confused and he's unsettled. He went up to Jerusalem to worship, but rather, as the story unfolds, it's clear that the man is, is now going back home without hope. He's confused. And he's lost. Maybe you feel lost, abandoned, without hope, traveling through the desert. But here's the thing, friend. God doesn't, didn't leave this Ethiopian alone, and he's not in leaving you alone either. He's not indifferent towards you. Instead, with a perfectly trained precision, he has set out in pursuit of his wandering sheep, his missing coin, his hurting, broken, lost people. Luke shows us a God in hot pursuit. He has coordinated the whole scene for the good of this man. Whether you're online or here, Your presence today is not by accident. Christian brother or sister, 
those that are in Christ. I know some of you feel that while you've experienced the grace of God through forgiveness, you still feel like a second-class citizen, not really knowing how to process hurts or failures, weaknesses, or shortcomings. You think God doesn't want you if you have this baggage detached, so you hold it. And you feel like, yes, I, I know about all about Jesus, but you still feel like you're in a desert. Friend, brother, or sister, God knows you and is still in pursuit. And perhaps God has led you to this desert, this desert place for a reason. Perhaps the very weakness, disappointments, failures, longings, pandemic, in our lives are the very tools God is employing to bring you to a deeper awareness of your need for him. They are instruments in the Redeemer's hands that he's using to teach us that he has not left us alone, but is ever near and always a pre- an ever-present help in times of trouble. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist in his book, The Second Mountain, he says this, Consider the possibility that we are the ones committed to, the objects of an infinite commitment, and that commitment is to redeem us and bring us home. That's what we see in this passage. This passage is we see God coordinating this meeting, and his pursuit is then coupled with power to save. As Philip goes down toward Gaza, he spots the Ethiopian's chariot and the caravan that around him. And the descriptions, again, that Luke gives us about the man are helpful to understand this passage. You go back to the passage in verse 22, uh, 27. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. For starters, the man is an Ethiopian. One commentator noted that to Philip, an Ethiopian could not have been a more exotic person. Ethiopia was a far off land. You might as well be at the bottom of the known world. A dark skinned man from far away, he was kind of an outsider to Philip. He was also an official. He served in the royal court and had enough clout to go away on such a pilgrimage for an extended amount of time. And being in charge of all Candace's treasure, he was likely a most trusted official who would have had authority. He would have been well-educated. He would have been wealthy. And just the fact that he purchased the Isaiah scroll, as we see in the passage, shows his wealth. This Isaiah scroll would have been over 29 feet long. And they didn't have, you know, printing presses, so it was all handwritten on a leather-bound scroll. It would have been terribly expensive. But he bought it. Why? Because the passage, and the passage tells us, he was a worshiper of God. We don't know how he came to know about the God of Israel, but Luke is very specific that the man traveled to Jerusalem to worship God. He was what some would call a God-fearer. 
He could not, he, he, he knew of the God of the Bible, he knew of the God of Israel, and he went to go to Jerusalem to worship, but he could never become a full convert because of his last characteristic. He's a eunuch. In many cases, the, the, the term simply means official. But I think Luke is, as a doctor, he's being very specific with his words. Luke's highlighting the more traditional understanding of the word and its physical realities. Let me be blunt. The dude had been intentionally castrated. Luke, a doctor, does not shy away from medical terminology. This man's mutilated body formed the main component of his identity. As an advisor to a queen, men, when in the full service of a female supervisor, were often castrated to prevent any impropriety. So to know that he is an official in the queen's court is to know that he's a eunuch. And he can only be an official because he is a eunuch. And perhaps he even allowed this to happen for personal uh, advancement of his own career. But his identity is wrapped up in his physical body. So, so what? Why does this matter? As one person writes, eunuchs belong to the most despised and derided group of men. And another says this, that eunuchs were such, are, are, are such an evil people and in them is greed and an assembly of various evil qualities. On account of their status, they experience high levels of power, thus access to wealth and education, but they were not accepted in society because it was a culture that was based on strong gender norms and robust honor-shame culture. Due to the fact that the eunuch culturally didn't fit into either category, male, female. It was shameful, mysterious, and as a result, he was ostracized. By belonging neither to cultural expectations or male or female, he had also violated the purity codes. And this, it is for this reason that eunuchs were not permitted to enter anything, going to Jerusalem, thinking about being at the temple, they were not allowed to enter anything but the outside courts because of his physical body. This is what, let me, let me pause for a quick public service announcement. The Bible is very blunt and honest. It's unabashed, uh, it's very candid, and it's talking about the human anatomy. And I say that because if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1, it gets particular, parents. All right, that's the end of the PSA. Here's what Deuteronomy says. This is what Moses writes. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. This is why he's described as a God-fearer. He believed in the God of Israel, but he could never fully convert because he was maimed in such a way as to be permanently excluded from the community. He had limited access. In this moment, in the return from his pilgrimage, God sends Philip to meet this man at this moment. Now think about it. It's not an easy trip to make. It's a long journey with great expectations that you go with, only to be met with frustration and further isolation. 
likely frustrated, disappointed, and experiencing the weight of what it means to be an outcast without any hope of breaking in. His political status and wealth were only accessible to him because of his physical body, but power and money didn't satisfy. He tried to find religion in Jerusalem, but he was kept as an outsider looking in. One, one writer says this, the entire experience would have probably proved frustrating. Both his Gentile status and his emasculation removed him from the center of things. He, in all likelihood, felt like an outcast. Get this. It is then all the more important that the eunuch was now pouring over the Isaiah scroll, trying to find answers to his quest for truth and for a way to bring him nearer to the presence of God, if that was even possible. He is pouring over this massive scroll for hope. The desert was a real place, but it's also a metaphor for where he is. It's a picture of this hopelessness, this aridness, this isolation. And it's here in this disappointment, in this frustration, in this sadness that the Spirit has him opened up and he goes, Philip, go now. And Philip, I, I just think it's just so crazy to see uh, you get overtaken by Philip as this caravan's going, hey, what you reading? He hears him reading Isaiah 53. He says, Philip, do you know what you're reading? Full of hope? Because he knows what it's about. And the guy throws up his hands. How can I? I need a tutor. Who's this talking about? I don't understand. Again, God has set it all up. I don't know if you've read Isaiah 53 recently. We, it's Lent. We're in Lent. We're going to be reading it again very soon. Good Friday. Easter Sunday. But there could not be a more perfect or ordained verse of the Old Testament for this man at this moment with this need. He's reading, he says, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch is, is concentrated on the passage of a man who is compared to a sheep led to its death in a way that it, it, was, it would be led to being sheared. This man had experienced the shearing of his own, and he knew humiliation firsthand. He knew injustice. His story resonates with this suffering servant who is facing public humiliation. And Philip, you know what he does? He preaches Jesus. He says, from this passage, we even sang it this morning, friends. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. That's who this passage is talking about, friend. And he knows what it means to carry a heavy burden. He came to bear the weight for us. He came to, to, to bear our sorrows. 
But not only did he come to bear it, he was pierced for us. Through him comes healing. Isaiah 53, 4 says this, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. One, this suffering servant that Isaiah is talking about knows what it is to have grief to be, but he also knows what it is to be an outsider, the one who is cut off. Now, the eunuch is truly an outsider, but... Jesus came to his own, but was treated like an outsider as well. And at the end, he was taken outside of the city to be crucified as a true outsider. So that guys like Philip and guys like the eunuch could be brought in. So that they would know, they would, that, they could, that through him, they could become members of the family of God that they could have a seat at the table of God. Even as we're, you, you, we're preparing to have the Lord's Supper, Jesus was pierced. He was cut off. He bore our sins so that we could be made whole. He was broken so that we could be made whole. Philip tells about the life and the death of Christ. He tells the, the eunuch about the resurrection. He tells him about his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He tells him that his spirit has fallen and that the invitation of, to receive forgiveness of sin, the fullness of life, and adoption as a child of God is, is yours by grace through faith in Christ. And God opens the eyes of the, of the eunuch he opens his heart to trust on Christ. He believes in Jesus and is willing to push all his chips in the middle. But he was waiting for what he had heard. Uh, but, but he was waiting for what he had, been he-, he had heard before. You can only get so far. And that's why he asked the question. In verse 36, what prevents me from being baptized? He says, how do I receive the sign of this new covenant? Can I? See, he's waiting for the other shoe to drop. He's fully expecting Philip to give a few reasons why he can't be baptized. He's expecting to be denied yet again, that his physical condition will further complicate his life. And you'll notice, if you're, if you're reading closely, you'll notice that your Bibles likely skip from verse 36 to 38. There's no 37 there. In some, in, in some translations, it has a 37. You'll probably have it as a footnote if you're reading the ESV. It's not left in the text because most trusted older manuscripts don't have it in there. There are some that, that, that rather, verse 37 was probably a scribe putting a margin note in the translation that added the ancient confession for baptism. 
Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he's, he, he replied, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That would have been a, 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 a historic confession, but it's not in the oldest manuscripts. And I think it's Luke doesn't put it in here because Luke is showing us something different. Instead, Philip gives no response at all. Instead, all we see in verse 9, and then they, they ordered that the, uh, uh, excuse me, 38, they, they ordered that the chariot to stop. In other words, Philip's saying, nothing prevents you. There is no delay, simply pure excitement, pure joy, pure relief. He has been pursued by God and now knows the power of the gospel to not only forgive sins, but to give him a new identity. He is a child of the living God. This supersedes and transcends every other identity, even the physical one. The eunuch is baptized, and in this he publicly declares his faith in Christ and his union with him and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And interestingly, Philip is just whisked away to another town. It's like Mario Kart. Do you remember uh, uh, Super Mario Brothers with like the, the whirlwind takes you to another town? I, I don't know. That must have also been incredible. I don't think it's a metaphor for Peter. Philip just went off. I think he was taken. But what, the next time we see Philip is in Acts 21. And you know what? He, he, he's called Philip the Evangelist. He continues to tell people about the, the transforming power and amazing grace of God. But we see that the eunuch is simply overjoyed. He's so overjoyed, he doesn't really care that Philip left. He, he simply goes on his way rejoicing. His joy was a result that, of God's grace that had been poured out upon him. He has been welcomed home before God, given status, worth, and a place unlike any other one that he ever had before. And no doubt, if he were to keep reading, he would have been brought greater joy. Because in Isaiah 56, we read this. Don't let foreigners who can commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be a part of his people. And don't let the eunuch say, I'm dried up, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting name, and it will never disappear. This man would never have children. His name would die with him. But God has given him an eternal name, an eternal name in Christ, and an eternal heritage. Brothers and sisters, his heritage is one that we share with him in faith, in Christ. He was not able to enter the temple, but in Christ he is the living stones that make up the true and eternal temple. God is residing in him. It was received by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is God's amazing grace. The only reasonable response is rejoicing. Let me ask you, have you received, have you experienced this new life? This eternal life that comes only by trusting in Christ. Have you experienced the love of God? This is what this story shows us. It is about the love God pours out in an immeasurable ways to lost and broken people like you and like me. Nothing could have brought this man true healing. Not his wealth, not his education, not even his attempts at religion. 
Only the power of God that comes through the gospel of Jesus could do this man any good. And it's the same for us today. Many of us are probably more like the eunuch than we think. We think that our story is too much for the Lord to handle. He can forgive others, but not you. You're too broken. You're too messed up. Your story's too complicated. Luke shows us, and we see throughout the scriptures, that these, these are the people that God loves to move toward. In fact, it seems like the more broken we are, the more God moves toward us. Consider, think of it even this story, that God would go through all this effort for one guy who lives at the bottom of the earth. I mean, he would miraculously call a person to get up off the couch, run to the desert to help him read a verse. God is serious about showing his power to save, and he says, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Brother or sister, Christian, maybe you've trusted in Christ, but you consider that there is still stuff in your life that is just too taboo, too humiliating, too broken to bring to God, and you feel like a second-class citizen. I'm convinced that most of us are only dipping our toes in the water of God's fullness because we, we think that the one place we can't go is before God with our mess. That if we actually, we think that we actually can bring our baggage to him, he would shake his head like a disappointed parent and say, again? Or worse, I can't believe I redeemed you. I'm done with you. But that's not the response the eunuch gets. It's not the one he, that we would get either when we go to God. Instead, God shows us when we go to him fully in faith and full dependence, there is life, there is hope, there is renewal. Again, you might recall the story of Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son. When the father sees the son running in the distance, who, who had run away wasting all of his inheritance, disgracing the family, he doesn't sit on the porch and go, this better be good, sonny. Instead, the father runs out to meet him, embraces him, welcomes him, washes him, feeds him, clothes him. This is the invitation that Jesus gives us in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're invited to bring the shame of our past, the anxieties of our future, and friends, there are a lot, and even the fears that we have before him. Ray Ortland says this, you take your need to the Lord right where you are, and you find in him all you need. You take fresh stock of his love that surpasses knowledge so that you settle down and settle in and take the next step, however scary it might be. That's how Christianity works. And whatever you need, Jesus has it. Your weakness doesn't limit him. Your weakness is where his strength enters in. Stay close to him, and he will prove himself to you over and over again. Here's the beauty of what the gospel means. It doesn't just mean eternal life in terms of quantity. That we're just going to have eternal life as, 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 
as just an amount of life. It means we'll live forever, but there's, there's also a qualitative aspect to it. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. God's power to save brings us back right into right relationship with himself, the very source of true life. This relationship completely reorders our lives. It gives us a new identity, new priorities, new longings, new hopes, new strengths. It transforms the way that we see the world. And this is exactly what the eunuch and Philip experienced. This is why Philip was willing to drop everything. To be a great evangelist is to not simply learn a new program for sharing the gospel. It's to delight in our salvation. As we consider the amazing grace that we have received and are walking in step with the Spirit, we will be, one, willing to be used by God, and two, ready when the Lord calls us to action. New Hope, let me ask you, when was the last time you considered your own salvation and rejoiced over it? Maybe as we sing in response in just a moment, Reflect on where you were when God sought you. Consider his laser-focused pursuit of your life. Consider the cost of your salvation and the joy God had in securing it for you. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The joy is not just in his defeating sin, it's also purchasing your redemption and bringing him, you home to himself. Consider the ways that he sustained your life and met you even in the most difficult seasons of life. You may be in one right now, struggling with a particular sin. You're anxious, you're fearful, you're lonely. Maybe thinking, I don't know how to handle this thing. Brother, sister, friend, take this to Jesus. Openly share it and ask him to give you help. You may feel like you're in the desert. The Lord knows you, cares for you, and is able to meet you where you are. And as we do, we're reminded from this passage that the church, let me, ask, let me back up just a, a moment as I close here. As we've been reminded of God's faithfulness, what if we made ourselves available to the Lord? Say, Lord, how can I be an ambassador for the kingdom like Philip? Who have you placed in my life? Spirit, lead me, help me, use me. And in this way, the church, through the Spirit's leading, is continuing the work that Jesus has came to accomplish, the work he announced he would do when he came in Luke 4, to bring liberty and rescue to the lost. This is what he, uh, Jesus proclaimed at the beginning of his ministry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Outside of God's love, there is only brokenness and marginalization, frustration. But God has not left us alone. Instead, he passionately pursued us. And he is continuing to, through us as his church, he's continuing to pursue, even through our own witness, a people who are made whole by the power of God revealed in the gospel. Dear brothers and sisters, 
This is an invitation to marvel at God's amazing grace. And it's also an, an invitation for us to say, Lord, would you, as you have changed my life, would you use me that others may know the power of your gospel as well? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this word of, uh, from the book of Acts. For those that feel that they are lost and abandoned, for those frustrated and, and trying to find a way forward, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move towards them, Help them to see the deep longings of their heart are fulfilled in Christ, in Christ alone. They would know the joy of having our identity in you, our sins forgiven, being welcomed home to the family of God. We are made new, given a future that is is eternally hopeful that we can't get on our own. And for us who have tasted and seen of your goodness, Father, would, would we marvel at it, delight in it? May it be the song of our, our, of our heart and the, and the... Would we rejoice continually and even be... Give ourselves over to you fully that we would be ambassadors of this good news. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.